Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco. This week, City Arts and Lectures is on the road, broadcasting from the Fog Design and Art Fair. Maker Adam Savage, best known as the host of Mythbusters, and artist Tom Sachs have long been obsessed with outer space, from the engineering and aesthetics of NASA to the immensity of interstellar exploration. The gear, the architecture, the fashion, and the dreams, all are part of Far Out, Suits, Habs, and Labs for Outer Space, an exhibition at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art through January 2020. Sachs and Savage join the exhibition's curator, Joseph Becker, to talk about their artistic practices and their love of outer space. Join me now for a conversation with Tom Sachs and Adam Savage. Welcome to Making the Moonshot. Uh, hello, and welcome to the Fog Fair, Design and Art. Um, and thank you for joining us this afternoon. I hope you all have been enjoying the galleries and walking around and um, possibly purchasing artwork from some of these people coming from near and far. My name is Joseph Becker, and I'm the Associate Curator of Architecture and Design at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And it's my privilege to bring together two fantastic gentlemen to the stage today, Adam Savage and Tom Sachs. You're here today to talk about your work, your philosophy, and your visions for space travel and how to make those visions real. Adam Savage lives here in San Francisco and is perhaps best known for co-hosting the acclaimed Discovery Channel series Mythbusters, which ran for 14 years and through over 1,000 episodes used up approximately 83 miles of duct tape. He currently produces the Mythbusters Junior program on the Science Channel and the website Tested.com, all of which have reached millions of viewers and inspired both old and new generations of physicists, scientists, and stunt drivers. Uh, I personally have been a big fan of Mythbusters because I think it has the perfect balance of building things and then blowing them up. Adam's background is in the special effects industry having worked on dozens of films, including the Star Wars prequels and the Matrix. Sorry, Sorry about those. <laughs> you didn't write the script, it's okay. Uh, a lifelong tinkerer, he's made fabricating things in almost any material, both his life, full-time career, and his hobby. Adam has always been fascinated with the prospect of space travel, and especially with the mechanics of actually getting into space including the suits, the jets, and the rockets. So much so that he's been building perhaps the most impressive collection of spacesuits outside of any government agency, and incredibly, he has fabricated all of them virtually from scratch. With help. With some help. Well, Lots of help. There's always a lot of help. It takes a village, as they say. <laughs> uh, a little pitch. Uh, in the SF MoMA Museum store right now, we're carrying a line of bags that Adam has made in collaboration with Mafia Bags in San Francisco. These are Adam's um, own designs for his everyday carry collection, and they're made out of recycled sails. Very cool. Our other 
lifelong fabricator, is joining us from New York. Tom Sachs is a master of bricolage, both in material assembly and a reassessment of the value of objects, from the creative reuse of police barriers to subverting the luxury of brands like Chanel. His prolific output has been the subject of numerous solo exhibitions, interventions, and demonstrations. He's in the collection of a laundry list of major museums, SFMOMA included, for his work that is often a re-examination of icons of modernism and the design achievements of those who inspire him. His work spans the functionality gap of art and design and ranges from objects to furniture to sculpture to small-scale architecture. He's produced films, including the influential 10 Bullets, A Guide to Running a Tight Studio, and A Hero's Journey, about excellence and perseverance and the philosophy of work. Tom's space program, which is also kind of a subject that we're gonna delve into here, um, ranges from the NASA moon landing in 2007 at Gagosian, Los Angeles, um, to the Mars mission at the Park Avenue Armory in 2012, and the journey to Jupiter's ice moon Europa at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in 2016. Um, all of these space program missions inspired countless visitors with the incredible complexity of a full-fledged expedition to space. Some of those inspired visitors hailed from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, uh, or as Tom calls it, the other NASA, proof that the path between art and science is a two-way street. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Adam Savage and Tom Sachs. The reason I've brought Adam and Tom here today is twofold. Uh, as a curator at SFMOMA, I'm inspired by artists and designers who achieve a level of fanaticism in the way that they work. Uh, it makes the intentionality of their work easy to see, and therefore, those of us who look at their work can't help but get sucked in. Adam and Tom each do this in their own way and in ways that overlap. One of those overlaps is their mutual fascination with outer space. This winter marks the 50th anniversary of the famous Earthrise photograph shot by astronaut William Anders. And this summer marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Both events changed the way we understand our relationship to the universe and mankind's ability to achieve the impossible. Uh, in July, SFMOMA will open the exhibition Far Out, Suits, Habs, and Labs for Outer Space which will focus not only on the scientific and technological achievements that have made space travel possible, but the visionary proposals by artists and designers that have fueled the quest and painted the picture, helping us collectively visualize what the future of space travel, and by extension, human existence in our solar system could be. In the exhibition, we'll look at how space has been explored and imagined from NASA concept art by Rick Guidis, to designs by Raymond Lowy and Constance Adams, to the future prospecting by Stanley Kubrick. Works by both Tom and Adam will feature heavily. So I've got a handful of questions for us today. Um, and I, some, some pretty fun things that we're gonna talk about, some good photos. Actually, in the background, 
Uh, we've got images from both Adam and Tom that'll kind of just cycle, and we'll, we're just going to have a little free-form conversation here. <laughs> this is from a, this is an image of the two of them from a Wired article that uh, Adam wrote uh, about Tom's practice. These guys have known each other for a long time. I'm, I'm kind of the newcomer here, but they've both given me hugs. I feel pretty lucky. Um, <laughs> thanks, man. Okay, you each have manifest your own space programs, your path, your process, and the results are different, but what has driven each of you um, might kind of align. Can you each tell me about what, what has driven you to explore space in your own way? I, I, mine stems from what I realize is a covalent fascination between spacesuits, suits of medieval armor, and the safety equipment that I used on Mythbusters that uh, I amassed over 13 years of the show, a huge collection of really high quality safety gear. And I realized that I loved it and cared for it the same way. And for the same reasons, I love suits of armor and spacesuits because I am amazed by humans' ability to build our own hermit crab shells that allow us to explore and go anywhere we want. And for me, the process of recapitulating these suits and pieces is a is sort of walking in the engineer in the in the footsteps of the engineers who put this stuff together, but it's also to clad myself in this idea about the possibility of what humans can do. I mean, it stems from my love of transformation from costume, uh, and I don't think anyone escapes from a love of costume. Everything we wear is a story about who we think we are, who we want to project. Uh, and this is just an extension of that. <laughs> I love that shot. This is backstage at New York City Comic Con, and the, always the backstage shots in the spacesuits look super authentic. Um, I hit the floor in this to, uh, as a scavenger hunt for fans at Comic Con to find me, and I got found in about 90 seconds uh, by a young, uh, a young woman who had built her own SpaceX spacesuit. Was your interest in building these suits present? As a, as a young man, as a boy? Yeah, no, the very first costume I ever made was a spacesuit. Um, someone told me that Baskin Robbins would give you those big cardboard buckets they serve ice cream out of, that when they were done, they washed them out and stored them in the back. And that if you asked, they would just give you a few. And so at like 10, I was like, could I have some of those buckets? And they gave me a half dozen of them. And the, I took them home and I was looking at what to do with them. And I realized one fit over my head really well. So I cut out a square, and my father was an animator for Sesame Street, and he had acetate. That was one, a clear acetate was one of my first art materials. And so I took acetate, and I made a face shield, and I masking taped it in, and a spacesuit was my very first homemade costume. Does that still exist? No. I mean, I actually, Good. when I, what's that? It could again. Yeah, no, it totally, it's never occurred to me to replicate the it. helmet collection? <laughs> what about you, Tom? your path towards outer space? I'm 52, so I was of the right age to believe that we'd keep going after Apollo. And even when they made the, uh, the flying toilet seat, the, the shuttle, space shuttle thing, um, we still believed it was going to get better. And now we're living in this age of um, uh, nostalgia. You know, we, we lost the Concorde. Um, computers are getting worse. Yeah, iTunes is unusable for a professional user. Please fix iTunes, Apple. <laughs> um, 
make it old and good again. <laughs> it's called uh, iTunes Pro. That's what I'd like. Um, but for me, it's uh, not so much about the space program. It's really that all things made by people, and I'm no exception, are made for three reasons. Um, and the space program is no different. Um, so the idea is uh, spirituality, um, uh, sensuality, and stuff. So spirituality is big questions. Are we alone? Where did we come from? Um, you know, you go to space to answer these questions. That's science. That's the loftiest idea. Um, and that's also religion takes that question. And then there's uh, sensuality, climbing the highest mountain, G-force, going where no man has gone before, all this exciting stuff. Um, and in the tea ceremony, there's things like the smell of the tatami or the smell of the incense and uh, the touch of fabric, sensual stuff, touch. Uh, and then the third reason is stuff. And that's where we the overlap. Gear. Yeah, rockets, spacesuits, spaceships, all of these, all the stuff. And um, you know, as a maker, that's the area that I occupy. But it's important to remind myself that, uh, and I remind myself every day that without the spirituality and the sensuality, that the stuff don't doesn't matter. Um, so you need all three. Do you feel like your process in in kind of creating the space programs as you have? embeds that spirituality into it. It's not just about, you know, a, a quest to achieve something like, you know, the government NASA is, but it's also a more of a philosophical quest. Well, this, the spirituality has takes many forms in, in the practice of the studio and, uh, you know, maybe if, to break it down to different uh, subgroups of spirituality. The first one, of course, is work. Uh, that's, you know, that, that, uh, to work is to pray, and, that, and that's my religion, and that's the grounding force in my life. And I think for any of us who love our jobs, whatever we do, that's number one. Um, so that's the biggest thing. Um, and you know, there, there, I think the other thing to consider is that there are politics behind the making of anything, or the politics of you know, having a real flown space helmet to an artifact that uh, does not flown to something that's like a, a very highly high quality replica to a uh, Paskin Robbins bucket with a face cut out. Those are all space helmets, and they're all real space helmets. They just have different, and none of them are fake. They're all authentic. None of them exist in a vacuum. And when you, when you touch a real piece of NASA hardware, the most striking thing I've found about having been lucky enough to touch real pieces of space equipment is that it's clear people built it. It's not mass produced, like you like to point out. Tom likes to point out that this resists any sign of its maker. The iPhone. Whatsoever, right. yeah. Um, but the NASA equipment has that, that, that meat on the bone that you can feel that someone made it. And they made it for a reason. They made it for institutional knowledge because they wanted to do a good job. They had to do a slip fit of an airtight fitting. And all of that, to me, has an origin and an obsession to get something done correctly. It had to work. It's kind of a life or death scenario. So like this best made thing ever, iPhone. Um, uh, without a doubt, the best thing ever made. Mm -hmm. um, it has no evidence of it being made, um, but it's an, it's an important part of a tradition of made things that goes back to the yeah. to the beginning of of man making uh, making uh, hand axes. Is the first thing that we that we know about. Um, but utility is a main driving force, and I think that's uh, something. Maybe if you go in the other room, you'll see that there's almost a jihad against utility. The more 
um, the expensive something is, the less it does. If you look at uh, like a chair to a sculpture to a painting, as it works its way up the wall, it tends to cost more. But well, we, we could talk about the utility of things that you look at as well. Uh, but you each have had a chance to kind of hold a piece of NASA hardware in your hands, yet each of your art practices, in a way, is about reinventing that. It's about making it your own. And Tom, I've, I've heard you talk a little bit about this idea of sympathetic magic, that in order to, to, uh, to achieve something, you kind of have to make it, you have, or you have to make a version of it, and then you have it, and you've invented... Uh, the whole ecosystem around what your ideal is, and then you've changed your ideal. So it's worth outlining just really briefly that sympathetic magic is an anthropological term, and it's used to, to describe things like voodoo dolls, or uh, the, the first time it was used up, uh, anthropologists went to New Guinea, and they, uh, they flew there by planes, and they had... Uh, they found local people making little models of airplanes, and they asked, why are you making this? And they said, because you came from there, you brought food and iron axes. And, and, and if we pray to these objects, more food and iron axes will come. And sure enough, more anthropologists came to see these model airplanes. And so it wasn't necessarily in maybe the way that the guys who made the planes envisioned it, but sure enough, people came. So the idea is if, if first you must, and this is true of anything in, in using sympathetic magic, you must believe and that it will happen. You don't necessarily need to know how it's done because any truly sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, according to Clark. But um, the, the important thing is that you believe in the idea, not how you're going to get there. What you've said is, you know, you had a, a vision of being an astronaut, for example, but that, that was potentially unattainable unless you built it from the ground up yourself. Sure. So when I first started make, working on the space program in earnest, I was in my 30s and I was an artist. I, I, I wasn't good at math. It wasn't, being an astronaut didn't seem like a legit, oh, this is a perfect slide to talk about this. Um, it didn't seem like a legitimate path or, or one that made sense because my diet already cast. I was committed to making art. But the interest in space persisted. So I made this helmet or this spaceship out of plywood and... Um, from scratch, when you look at it in real life, you don't, there's no question that it's made from stuff from Home Depot. There's no illusion, there's no promise. Even in this photo, it looks a little bit too good, mm -hmm. I think. Um, well, even though the level of resolution, you know, that's just your kind of, your signature. And Adam, your level of resolution comes from a different background. Your, your background in special effects and, and in kind of creating things for the lens. So it has to be, perfect visually and convincing visually, but functionally, maybe not necessarily. And I'm very agnostic. I move all over the map in the stuff that I build as to where I find, where I desire the fidelity. Because on the spacesuits aren't pressure suits. Although I was just showing Tom this morning, I just got a beautiful um, full cooling suit from uh, I think the 70s, uh, not space program, but more high altitude pilot program. Um, and so I've been starting to collect some smaller pieces of NASA hardware. But sorry, where was I? <laughs> Building for the lens. Degrees of fidelity, right. So for me, there's the object, the desire to handle the object, and then to, like, to put the gloves on and look at my hands in the gloves, and to put the suit on and think about being out there. And then, you know, to put on my safety equipment. 
And so when I put on my silver uh, fireman's turnout uh, proximity suit, I'm impervious to fire for the period of time I'm wearing that. Mm -hmm. Most fire. Uh, <laughs> and that, that's a thrill, but I don't necessarily need the spacesuit to take me to space as much as I want to go to space, because I do. Well, you kind of go to space in a certain way, just like Tom goes to space in the space programs. It's just a different, changing the frame of how we consider going to space. I think the fidelity issue is meaningful because in, in our spacesuits, we have also have liquid cooling garments. They, uh, we also have ventilation um, and air being pumped in through fans because they are airtight and you will suffocate and you need the cooling garment because they're hot and sweaty and it's brightly lit. And we're all here sweating on stage. Imagine being in a spacesuit on, on stage. But I think the difference between a, um, one of my spacesuits and one that's made for a movie is that we make the, for us, it's, uh, in, a, in, a, in a movie you do, you, do it as, you do as little detail as possible to represent the idea of it because you're trying to fake it for the camera. It's always about the camera. But for us it's about the experience and the rituals of the space program. So. Although some people view what we do as performance art, we always, uh, there's a swear jar in the studio, if you put a quarter and if you say performance art, you're supposed to say live demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's, it's an authentic experience. And some of the people that came to your, some of your live demonstrations actually come from the world of aeronautics as well. And that makes me so think I, about- Actually, I, I wanna go to the, because the performative aspect of it is really, that's also something that I wanna tease. When I've done costuming on the floor of Comic-Con, I had this incredible experience at one point where I was dressed in a Japanese anime character named No-Face. And I was taking pictures and handing out pieces of gold to people after the picture, which is part of the plot of the movie No-Face is in. And someone gave me back the gold that I'd given them. And then somebody else clearly angrily gave me back more gold that I'd given them. And I realized it's because No-Face, it's bad luck to take gold from No-Face in the movie. And so there, that performative aspect of putting on the costume and transforming, and at Comic-Con specifically, where audience and performer is a totally blurred line. But that performative aspect of going through those motions, uh, real things are happening. Like the missions that you guys go on in the space program, they're real missions. Yeah, they're stakes. Yeah. And, this, and the stakes of No Face costume is that people got angry, as they should have, but you evoked a real emotion, and those people maybe they enjoyed the anger because they felt more connected to the story of Spirited Away? Yeah, and I actually ran into one of the people, one of the two people who gave me back the gold. He was a young TSA screener about a year later. Did he pat you down? What's that? Did he pat you down? He did gold? not. He let you on with your leather man? He did. Um, this, this, is, this is really about this cycle of imagination and inspiration too. Because if you're, if you're kind of bringing people into the fold and you're inspiring them and you're convincing them, then they've, they've subscribed to your idea. And I think that that goes for more than just you know, visitors to your artwork and your demonstrations and more for the people that, that watch your videos, Adam, or see your work. It's really kind of cross-disciplinary. It's not just artists, but it's also science and how science and art and design all fit together. And through developing uh, this exhibition uh, called Far Out, I've been thinking a lot about what is the recursive cycle between art and science and kind of between the envisioning of the vast potential of space, which we could consider you know, the work of many artists, and the realization of that vast potential, which would be designers, engineers, scientists, technologists. Those two things fuel each other, certainly. 
the work that you create inspires NASA scientists to do something just as much, I think, as um, you're inspired by what they're doing. It's because we're doing the same thing. I, when NASA, so NASA has an experiment that's going, been going for several years on Mauna Loa in Hawaii called the High Seas Experiment, in which they do long-term mission missions. <clears throat> Uh, so it's a group of astronaut uh, 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 candidates, I think six at a time, put in a habitat on Mauna Loa, which is about as close to Mars as you can get outside of South America. And they live for six months or a year together in close quarters. And, that's, and they can't leave the habitat without putting on a suit. It's not a pressure suit, but it does have a cooling system. It does have ventilation. But they have to go through this six months or a year under the rules that they would that would be thrust upon them if they were on Mars. And they all talk about immediately, the work is not fake. The moment they're ensconced in that habitat, they say they fall in love with the suits. The suits become their lifeline and they have this deep sort of weird affection for them. And I mean, so the work for those scientists becomes completely real. The, per the performance of the work is the actual work. And I submit that there's not much difference between whole sections of what NASA and JPL and places like that too, and what we're kind of exploring. That experiment is kind of um, taking a few turns. Yes, yes, they had a disaster. They had a medical <laughs> emergency. They had to shut down the last mission. And now they're no longer doing Mars. Now they're doing moon colony missions. I think they've rejiggered the whole high seas experiment. Well, there's a whole psychological aspect to long-term space travel that we could, yeah. we could begin to unravel. Something that you dive into a little bit in the longer performances. What happens in the, the space in between, between the mission, hibernation, long sleep, things like that are explored. So at YBCA we did, um, live demonstration, it was something like six or eight hours long. The armory was 12 hours long because we're less organized um, and more, less practice. And um, when you do something for that long, this, like the stakes are real. It, it, uh, the experience does become real. There are options. It's not always going to go one way. We have a death ritual in the event of an accident. We have a, a Nixon impersonator reading William Sapphire's uh, letter to the public that it was written in the event in 1969 that the astronauts were marooned on the moon, which is a real likelihood if the ascent stage motor didn't work. And, the, and we had real stakes, not because we didn't want them to die, but because our Nixon impersonator video was so terrible that we didn't want, anyone, <laughs> we didn't want to have to use it. I'd so, love to see that sometime. It's awful. <laughs> but the, the letter is worth reading, and that's, you can download that. Yeah. That's great. Um, well, I, I think, you know, when, when we think about the, that feedback loop between the way that the um, future of space travel has been rendered and then how it's currently being realized, uh, we're calling attention to the fact that we share in a collective imagination uh, about the possibilities of space travel. And that collective imagination, I think, has been perpetuated by Hollywood and it's certainly been realized by government agencies and now by the private sector and, and how to actually launch and lift and explore other planets. Um, how do you think art in any form has helped shape our understanding of space travel? Well, I, I think art's important at the, at, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's, 
absolutely at the bottom. It's the last thing that you need. It's the last thing that you buy. It's the, you know, after you have air, you know, um, sex, I think is like really weirdly high on the thing or, uh, um, and, or intimacy or no intimacy is lower in, 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 Ma in Maslow's hierarchy. Intimacy Reproduction. Is you, you, we have to like look it up. It should be a flashcard. Someone can, someone can bring it up and put it on the screen. But, but art is for sure at the bottom um, because it's the last thing that, that you need because it's, it's contemplation. Mm -hmm. and, um, but it's in a way the thing that separates us from the animals because it's, you know, if, anim if human beings are, the, are, are different from the other animals because we can, we can only, uh, only humans can contemplate their own demise and the, the short number of years between their birth and their death, there's this like um, uh, ferret of pain in every man's heart that helps us come to terms with that. And, and, and some people think that art's the way we deal with it, with a decision to love another or not. You know, if you, if you get very um, uh, philosophical or existential, you could easily just say, forget it and go crazy. But art's the thing that keeps us sane. And I argue that it's not just the art that we do, but all art is what inspires scientists. And wouldn't art, therefore, have utility? At the highest level and the, and the, and, and, and the, and the, and the, at the most sophisticated uh, peak of things. And I think that's why painting is more important than sculpture, because it has, it's a little farther away from utility. It's pure object of contemplation. The, 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 the scroll and the tea ceremony is the highest object in the tea ceremony because it's, it's not a tea bowl, but it's something to look at. It's a communication of idea. It's the, the main gift in the tea ceremony from the host to the guest is the scroll in the tokonoma, the shrine, that conveys an idea. It also tells a narrative. Right? It's about recapitulation. It's about looking and exploring. So, you know, during, in this next year that we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo, you're gonna see a lot of bullshit arguments of people saying, why are we spending money on space? That always happens whenever we have a cultural sort of swelling of pride in, in space exploration. But humans have to explore. Clearly, for better and for worse, we have to explore. And I think that art and science to couch NASA and what we do as two separate categories. I don't think that they are two separate categories. They're both just ways in which we explore and talk about what we're exploring. And art is ostensibly the one that's more internal and emotional, and science is the one that's more external and objective and rigorous, but both of them delve deeply into each other's territory, and they're both ways in which we understand what's going on around us. I mean, each of our personal things we do in our shop is all part of meditation to try and unpack the stuff that's rattling around up here and make it physical and, oh, okay, I have a reaction to this. And then I hand it to you and you have a different reaction and I learn something from that. And then I take it out to Mojave and I learn something else looking at that each time I see it. It's all an unfolding. Um, and, I, and I think about how things unfold, right? There's a narrative, you're talking a little bit about the scroll, which depicts a narrative, which is the highest form of art in the tea ceremony because it ties you into a logic of time. The logic of time of a film is, is crucial. And 2001, Stanley Kubrick's opus, we can consider it, is I think like kind of the crux of depicting our, uh, or helping us imagine uh, a future of space travel. 
because it, it satisfies all of these things. It satisfies questions of existential crisis, it satisfies curiosity of science fiction, and it's rendered in a way that has a palpable materiality. Kubrick is kind of identifying the objectness of space travel, and in that sense, I believe, you know, as he's inspiring uh, NASA to then produce certain things. I have a quote that I brought. Would it be okay if I read it to the yeah, audience? Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking quite a bit about Kubrick. <laughs> For those of you listening on the radio, um, Tom has just produced September 1968 Playboy, 75 cents. Page 195. This is an interview with Stanley Kubrick. You gotta look at the text, Tom. <laughs> um, oh, now I'm, I've lost the, the spot. Okay. Um, the most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it's hostile, but that it, it is indifferent. But if we can come to terms with this indifference and accept the challenges of life within the boundaries of death, however mutable man may be able to make them, our existence as a species can have genuine meaning and fulfillment. However vast the darkness, we must supply our own light. And I would argue that art is that light. Pretty amazing. Considering shortly after Kubrick released 2001, the global population had the first chance to actually look at the Earth itself as a blue marble. That's the image that I showed earlier of the Earth rise. It was really the first time that we could collectively understand how minuscule we were in a larger understanding of the universe. Also, that Earth rise photo is really an interesting test case here because the astronauts doing that flyby, they were supposed to be taking very specific photos of the surface of the moon as they were going. They were reconning for the next mission. And then they looked up and they saw it. And they, I'm getting chills as I'm describing it. And they realized, oh, wow, that's really something. And then they wondered, should we go outside of protocol and tilt the camera up? And they decided in the middle of this scientific exercise that this other thing, this other story they wanted to communicate had value. And it had this intense and amazing value that inspired generations of people just to tilt that camera up. They, that tilt is they risked the entire mission for art or for spiritual. That's it. Yes, yes. That's, that's art. Yes. That's art right there. So everybody make sure when you're in your next spaceship to look out the window. Um, I, I like to think of NASA as a ritualized failure analysis bureaucracy. Uh, I thought you'd like that. <laughs> Buckminster Fuller refers to the planet that we're on as Spaceship Earth. And I think that there was something incredibly humanizing about the realization that there are no discernible geopolitical borders when you're looking at Earth from you know, the surface of the moon. And that, that puts a lot of things in perspective today. If you take the lens of space travel and our quest to get off the Earth, maybe to, as Elon Musk says, have a backup plan for humanity or something like that, we really should start to think about what we're doing to the planet as it is. This spaceship Earth, we're on one thing together. We're all cosmonauts hurtling through the galaxy. Um, and then you really get into Nietzsche, and then Kubrick really starts to unravel. 
yeah, Fuller talks about it's not, you know, it's not, it's not some of us, it's all of us. Um, and people argued in the 60s and 70s that we um, weren't spending enough money on the problems in our cities, we're spending money on space. Um, you know, there's an amazing song, Whitey on the Moon, a rat done bit my sister Nell, and Whitey's on the moon. How come I can't pay these doctor bills? Whitey's on the moon, so on and so forth. But it's not that you must, um, that you have to choose between education and science. You have to do both. And we don't go to other planets because we've this one up and we're looking for a new home. We're going so we can better understand our resources here on Earth. It's a, it's a drop in the bucket. And it's, again, it's, it's for the art of our consciousness science. It helps us come to terms and understand this stuff. There's also, it's also, it's, as you keep on saying about narrative, it's about storytelling. Humans have not only a need to explore, but also to share our stories. And when you talk about the hierarchy of needs, I, I, always, I start, got my start in theater, and I love pointing out that theater is the first art form that will survive an apocalypse intact. The morning after the apocalypse, the dozen or so people left in some city are going to gather around a fire and tell stories. And when we go to other planets and recapitulate what we found there for each other so that we understand our solar system better, our place, where are we? We're doing the same thing with art. We're, we're telling stories that help us contextualize. And I think that one of the things that's happening right now that's, that's a problem with the world is that so much of the stories that we're trying to share with each other are being attenuated and modulated by people with vested interest in changing those stories. And it means that we're not able to hear each other. We're not able to experience each other's experience. So where do you think we're going in our quest to get off the world? Could, be, be, other could be cake. Oh, man. Well, I think we're, it's, it's becomes, it's almost like a biological issue because it's, a, it's about the genetic spreading and the true nature of success is reproduction. So, uh, so it's an ego thing. I think on one level it could be, but it could, but maybe it's not ego because birds and bees do it. And well, now we're, you know, partially we're we're trying to get into uh, into space with government agencies, but it's also private enterprise, and they're often kind of run by very wealthy white men, and there feels like there's a little bit of an imbalance, and maybe there always has been in the industry of space travel. I wonder if maybe it's art that helps reassign um, you know, who gets access. Maybe in, in a way I see both of your practices as something that says, it, space travel is not just for this very privileged few. And there are other artists like Tavares Strahan, for example, who are really trying to explore you know, what's, um, what, what would a space program of the Bahamas be like, for example. And I kind of see both of the work that you're, that you're creating as, as bringing NASA or science or design and technology to more people in a freer way? Well, there's, we always send women on our missions, but um, there's this thing called the Planetary Protection Protocol, which is from like, I mean, it could even be back as far as like 1957 Sputnik era, but the idea is don't bring moon bugs back to Earth and don't bring Earth bugs to Mars when you go there. That's why you have quarantine things. And even today, when you launch a, JPL launches a rover, they make sure that they scrub it so it doesn't bring Earth bacteria to Mars. But we are, 
in our space program, we're American imperialists and we choose to represent the values of our nation. So we bring the noise and we bring, you know, the, we bring the art of the African diaspora with a boombox because that's the culture of American. And we bring the Japanese tea ceremony because I, that's and it's a very personal choice, but I think that's kind of like the best nugget that shows all the different aspects of art wrapped up in, in one. It's embedding a philosophy yeah. and a process. But I, I don't want to miss the opportunity, at least in my space program versus the other NASA, to, um, to show the dark side of, of exploration. I mean, you, you, when you take Europeans to the new world, you screw everything up and you get slavery and you get to make the new world defeat the old world and ultimately capture uh, Nazi scientists and use them to get you to go to another world and kill God. Yeah, start looking at history, it's pretty bad. So, so this, this, it's it's dark, and but through that we have like the incredible art of you know of the of the diaspora, which is you know Lil Wayne, and we get to we get to uh, we get to we get to share that in, in our in our little space program. Do we share other visions of uh, other possibilities? You, I mean, that's you're showing other ways of thinking through the problem it's and a, other ways of executing. It's, the problem. A, it's another historical arc to it to like to study. Just I mean, as, a, as a small example, that image that I showed earlier of the, uh, the Space Colony painting by Rick Guidas was part of a, a study by NASA of what it would be uh, like if we were able to create colonies. And they used the word colonies as this idea of like colonizing space. And today, we, you know, we would, we would not use that word and it's been kind of reprogrammed as... Uh, I remember being taught Manifest Destiny unironically. If you watched uh, Walt Disney's 1957 Journey to Mars, which is on YouTube, it's the same design reference architecture that NASA is using currently. Nothing is different, including the number of days of the, of the journey and the orbiting and the landing, except they have guns. Um, I want to shift a, a little bit for a moment into your actual process, your practice, the hands-on. Um, and you, you, you both, you have a wonderful dialogue between the two of you, Adam, when you're in New York, you can use Tom's shop and vice versa. Um, what we've, we've, exchange, we've exchanged yeah. keys. Yeah. <laughs> Our so. wives describe us as dating. It's, it's cute, it's great. What, what is it about keeping a shop and, and, um, and utilizing your resources and, and kind of expanding your knowledge base about fabricating that, it, that, that really drives you? Well, uh, every single shop is a, is a philosophy about how to work. It's, the, it's, an, it's a philosophy made extant by the maker in that space of how they desire to work. And if, I mean, you know, I've had spaces that were messes and that's the way I liked to work at the time. Uh, I'm a much neater person now with a more comprehensive philosophy about how I want to work. And my shop reflects that and it's where, I mean, we, maybe we explore because we want to try and find some sense out of everything. And my shop is where I go to pretend that the world has order and to enjoy the fiction that I have some control over it. <laughs> that's my, that's, that's, it, it, that's my sanctum. That's oh, why well, I go there. When you're in your shop, you do, you know, you're the, you're the master I, of your domain. Yeah. I present myself with, with interesting problems that I'm not sure if I can solve, or I'm not sure what the solution's going to look like. 
and I execute and I iterate until I get to something that feels like where I kind of wanted to end up. But I mean, I don't know where I'm going to end up. Does that have any bearing on the fact that maybe the larger issues outside of the door of your shop are much more difficult to resolve? I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of a, in the midst of a little bit of a cultural crisis, and I, I think turning inward to, to solve smaller problems is maybe a smart coping mechanism sometimes. I grew up with a, my father was a painter, and so I grew up with an example of watching someone work their, work their stuff out on a canvas every day. Um, so I was inculcated with that as a value. And I think that it is value. I don't think I'm turning inward to the shop any more than I used to. Um, I'm actually turning my shop outward much more. I like, uh, to me, the, the space is designed to be shared with people and it's designed, I throw fundraisers in there, I threw Sketchfest's opening night party last week in there, and I, I love bringing people into that space and letting them experience the cacophony. And as you can attest, it's overwhelming and I love it's that aspect. Wonderkammer, I mean, it's got amazing things from all, oh, I, I'm sure you can find images of Adam's shop, but there are uh, props from hundreds of films and, and artifacts and you're always kind of in the midst of creating something that is really exciting, just as, as, as Tom's shop is. James Brown said, um, I thank God that every day he allows me to work because that was like what kept him going. The hardest working man in show business. And, and my studio is kind of like a temple. Um, when I'm not sinning, when I'm acting with virtue, I'm just working and I'm in the zone, I'm like an athlete. And this is a great picture of all of us training. Um, that's actually not me doing my best work, that's me being an administrator and organizing with Evan Murphy and Mary Annarino. Um, but actually cutting wood, like the, the humble act of cutting wood or touching clay, making real-time decisions, drawing. Um, of course, you have a space program, there are a lot of bills to pay and things to organize, but I try and make my studio a place where all the materials and equipment are where I, where I think they should be so, it's, so it, it's quick. And I spend a lot of time organizing stuff, organizing my paint box so when the moment of inspiration strikes, I don't have to go out to the store and buy the color red paint, it's, it's, it's there. Um, and that's for any of the artists in the house, artists? Got a handful of artists. I think there's some more, but everybody's shy. You know, it's okay. I know the feeling. Um, uh, it's a great, it's one of the, like Tom's rules of survival as artist is if you don't know what to do, null your space and make sure you've got paint red or whatever color paint. Make sure you have red paint on the hand. I was reading from Adam that when you don't know what to build, you, you build your shop. Yes. I, I, I spent a lot of my youth thinking that cleaning up was something you did at the end of the day, at the tail end of the production. But it's about 25% of what I do in the shop. That's why Marie Kondo is such a hit right now. <laughs> Keep it clean, people. Keep it clean. Um, we have just a few more minutes in the program today. I want to, first of all, thank you both for being with us. Really amazing. Very inspiring, each of your practices. Um, and I'm happy to be part of spreading your gospels. Etc. Um, but we've got some time for a few questions from the audience. I think if you raise your hand, we'll get a microphone to you so that don't forget your broadcast on the radio. Oh yeah, there we go. Uh, thank you guys for coming. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about sort of like style and fashion, and one of the things I've observed is 
it seems like in the last few years, the NASA name is being used on like shirts that you see at Target. And I saw- I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> well, and I see you've got the Nikes on and uh, Adam's got the Vans on. I'm wondering I'm if you guys like see your work as inspiring some of that. And then do you see sort of that as being, uh, I guess, sort of uh, taking advantage or, or you know, using that NASA name in a bad way, or is it uh, contributing to the conversation? What are you guys' thoughts on that? I think NASA is one of the more pure brands, to use a word, but NASA is one of the more pure brands in the world because I think that people really connect and connect with NASA's mission. It's a pure mission. Uh, their execution of it feels ritualized and it feels artistically sound as well as and sound from an engineering standpoint as far as whether we ha whether i've had anything to do with nasa excitement I, you never know that you never have any idea about that but i love when people talk about getting excited about that we need more people looking into those histories and less people wondering if we live on a flat planet um uh, you know, NASA is the is the Chanel of science. It, and it's, there you it, have it. It's, yeah. it's the most elite um, science brand, and I think it's great that also, like to echo what I'm saying, that people have NASA logos on instead of um, whatever sports team is in their city, but none of the people on that team are from that city. Yeah, we're fighting about their clothes. I think we're all pretty keen on NASA. NASA is currently partially shut down, FYI. Just keep that in mind, everybody. We got a question in the front. Okay. Uh, well, Adam, do any of your space do any of your spacesuits actually work? Would you trust one in a vacuum? Sorry, can you can you say it one more time? Sorry. Would one of my spacesuits work in a vacuum? Um, no, not currently. We have recently, my team and I have explored making a pressurizable suit, but I'm, look, I have no formal education in engineering or science, but I know enough to know that the testing procedure for trying one of my suits under any type of negative pressure would be a very incremental and slow methodical process. But you should look up the work of Dr. Cameron Smith, who, I don't know if you've been there, but he's a the friend. Portland. Sorry? The Portland guys? Yes. Yeah. So he made a pressure suit from things at Home Depot only, exclusively. And I've been in his suit and I've been in his sim uh, simulator and he's doing or has done a, you know, he's going to Armstrong space in it, which is- He's going to the Armstrong limit, 60,000 feet. It's a partial pressure suit. Yep. They're, and they're doing amazing work. And I love exactly that guy. He's, we were talking to them specifically about work. Vice um, video on him. I think that question kind of cuts to the core of your practice, Adam. It's not so much that you're interested in creating a pressurized suit. You know, the, the mechanics are interesting to you, but you're, you're actually just, um, I think, more infatuated with the recreation of the object in its entirety. I'm also interested in the methodology. I went up and, I went up and spent some time with the folks at Blue Origin last month, and they asked to sit down and talk to me, and 
I had no idea what I have to contribute to this group of engineers. And it turned out one of the things they wanted to talk about was the exact type of methodological iteration that I got really good at on Mythbusters. Quick and dirty tests to a stat, to basically to do what Google X does, which is to beat on an idea until it survives. Right, come up with an idea and then work really hard to kill it. And if it lives through that, then it's something worth taking another step further. And that type, having that institutional knowledge was thrilling to me to talk to these guys about how to do something in a parking lot and still do it safely and still do it without pissing off the fire department and yet being able to come to some conclusions about the, uh, about the methodology uh, in a fairly rapid response time. Very cool. And yeah, any other so questions? I wanted to ask, how did the two of you meet as artists and start to share space and what brought you together? Like, like all true love, we met online. It's, um, Tom, we were introduced, this is the name drop, we were introduced by Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom is a fan of the Mythbusters and his son Truman was actually one of our interns for a, a few months, a few years ago, and he's a wonderful kid. And I had come across Tom Sachs's work and sent a picture of it to Hanks and said, do you know about this guy? And he said, I know him, would you like to meet him? And he introduced us and then we started hanging out. We started hanging, you know. Just hanging at first. <laughs> uh, question back here. I, I wanted to ask with Blue Origin and SpaceX exploring a little bit more into space tourism, if you were to go into outer space anywhere, uh, where would you visit? Sorry. Where, well, where to visit? Question. Um, I'm going to quote Adam Stelzner, our mutual friend, who would say, I don't want to go to space. I want to, uh, Earth is one big warm wet kiss. I want to explore every inch of this planet first. Even going to the worst place on Earth, which is um, Florida, <laughs> um, is, is or, or, or Antarctica, is so much more hospitable than the best place on Mars. Um, and I think it's, 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 it's worth watching like, Animal Planet or Planet Earth or Planet Earth 2 in Ultra HD um, to see how miraculous this, this, this special place is, to see the diversity of animals and weird aliens that live here. Well, and actually, so there's a thing that is a sort of a cultural phenomenon, and I know enough astronauts know they don't all necessarily buy into this, called the overview effect, where, according to a lot of astronauts, going to space and looking back on Earth gives an incredible perspective for how amazing where we are. And it strikes me to also tell a Buckminster Fuller story here. Buck, Bucky Fuller used to, when he gave talks, hold up a steel ball. But he'd say, it seems like we have a lot of water on this planet. You look out at the Pacific Ocean and there's, it's really deep. Uh, and he holds up a three foot diameter steel ball and says, how deep are the oceans on our planet? And then he breathes on it and says, and says the average depth of the oceans on Earth is the thickness of the condensation of my breath on this steel ball. And that's how tenuous this spaceship's atmospheric system really is. That being said, I would love to be an early space tourist. I just don't have the millions of dollars. So I'm hoping to be one of the early civilian ambassadors to space. I'm staying in shape, hoping someone will send me up. Yeah, I'm also, just so you know, I'm also training. For, and, and, Ayazawa, you know we're going. There might be a seat left still. I think he's holding out for you. 
Maybe, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I think what's important is that it be a good mission. I, I think I, I would go. I think that I'm like fit and prepared to go. It's, I think it's just important when you send people that you send the right artists who are gonna get good stuff. Don't you think on the, on the um, opposite end of that argument, the important people to send would be the people that could actually shift our attention towards preserving the earth? You know, to, to give those people the perspective. 100%. And perhaps like, some global send leaders. All, send all those, like, climate uh, deniers. deniers. I, would, I, would gladly, I would gladly give up my seat for, I, mean, I don't want to name names, but you know who they are. Our it's not necessary. Our culture's greatest science art communicator, Carl Sagan, I love his quote from Contact, in which she says, as she's experiencing this miraculous uh, vision that she is seeing inside the ship, they should have sent a poet. Excellent. One question in the middle. Hi, guys. Uh, thank you for speaking. Big fan of you guys' work. Um, I just had a question. If procrastination plays a role in your process, and do you use it to its full potential, or do you find methods to get rid of it, or null it, at least? Thank you. Uh, I have hundreds of projects that are halfway done. I will die with hundreds of projects halfway. Tom said this, everyone dies with a to-do list. Um, I have a rack of material storage in my shop up to eight feet, and then from eight feet to the ceiling, it's all uncompleted projects. And having them stare at me, they don't taunt me. It's just each one is a possibility of a way I might spend a day or a week or a month. Uh, and I find that inspiring. I don't beat myself up about not getting certain things done. And I procrastinate, and I'm just as lazy and venal as, as anybody. Yeah, I, I think um, procrastination's a bad thing. You know, do the hard things first. Um, it's easier, you're fresher, it helps not out to dinner. But the opposite is equally valid. Um, do the easy things first, um, just because it's a good way to start the day. And when you're confronted with something difficult, skip it and move on to the next problem, work that until you get stuck, and so forth, and keep moving on. And after three or four procrastinatory moves, you might circle back to the first one, and your subconscious will have worked on it, and you may have found the answer. Not always, this is the luxury of having extra time. Um, and in that case, procrastination is a great thing. It's like solving a problem by sleeping on it, only cheaper. It's fermentation. On that, folks, I want to thank Adam and Tom for joining us today. You've been listening to Tom Sachs and Adam Savage in conversation with Joseph Becker. The exhibition, Far Out, Suits, Habs, and Labs for Outer Space, is at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art through January 2020. This program was recorded at the Fog Design and Art Fair in San Francisco on January 19th. 2019. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate Goldstein Breyer and Holly Mulder Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Production and Communications Assistant is Juliet Elfman Randazzo. The post production director is Nina Thorson. The Sydney Goldstein Theatre Technical Director, Steve Eckerd. The recording engineer is Jim Bennett. Theme music is composed and performed by Pat Gleason. 
the founding producer is Sidney Goldstein. To come to a live program, see who we're hosting next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net.